I say? What do I use? I want to get this out of the way first. Just say your highness. Ah! <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to the ChargeCast. My name is Nick Novak here at the U.S. Consulate in Mumbai. And joining me today, Nidhi Goyal, a disability and gender rights activist. And she is also India's first female disabled comedian, if I said that correctly this time. Um, Nidhi, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much, Nick, for having me here. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you. It's a real honor. Um, I'm wondering, first off, if you can introduce yourself a little bit to, to the people who are watching. Um, I, I'm just wondering what's going to get the attention. I, whatever, whatever you think. I, I thought mean, I'd really start by saying I'm a single woman, but then I thought yeah, maybe not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, um, I'm a disability and gender rights activist, as you really um, mentioned, and I'm a comedian as well. But really, um, working at the intersections of disability, gender, sexuality, violence. I run my own nonprofit called Rising Flame, which is based in Mumbai, um, and we work with women and youth with disabilities. But I'd really like to say that I am more not just an activist, um, I mean, to for fun, it's like single woman, Indian, et cetera, et cetera. Depends on where you are and which, which feathers you want to ruffle. But really, um, I look at myself as a dreamer, believer, doer, um, and my profession, a researcher, writer, trainer, activist, campaigner. Ah, it's a lovely description. <coughs> uh, I'd kind of like to start, though, I want to talk stories because people love stories and I love a good story. Mm -hmm. um, but some ground rules first. And one thing we always run into is what do we call things, right? And I don't know, is it disabled? Is it um, visually impaired? Is it, um, what, 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 what do I say? What do I use? I want to get this out of the way first. Just say your highness. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> no, just joking. Since I thought I was empowered to tell you what I want to be called. <laughs> but I got to tell you, I think you could have said that. If you said that with a straight face, I would probably do it, right? <laughs> That's the power I have. But anyway. Um, I said I'm a disability rights activist. Okay. So the word disabled is absolutely fine. Okay. A person with a disability is absolutely fine. A woman with a disability is how I identify and I call myself blind. So that's really, really not a problem. Okay, good. That's, yeah. a, that's a great starting point. So Fantastic. I think you have had some amazing TEDx talks, um, which, I've, which I've watched and are pretty great. And I hope we can put a link to it um, as well. But mm -hmm. I, I want to get to sort of what you're famous for, what you're known for, which is comedy. And, and I'm curious, how how do you start in the comedy world? Like, what ha is there a spark? Did you wake up one day and say, "I'm going to be a stand-up comedian"? No, no. Um, what was what was that journey to become a comic? Um, I, I still wouldn't say I'm a very very famous comic, <laughs> the way you're putting it. But um, I think it was a very spontaneous thing. I don't think it was a planned wake up, um, an aha moment, etc. It was really a friend and a senior activist who sat down with me and was listening to some of the stories that I had. Like you, she's also interested in stories. And so I was narrating some stories which were really cracking her up. And she said, wait, 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 the way you're saying it, the stories that you have are really the stories of a stand-up comic. And that's how I started. So tell me about the first <coughs> time you did stand-up comedy. I, I, I feel that that would be a terrifying moment to be on stage <laughs> and there's just there's silence and then it's go be funny. Um, I think that that's the that's the thing you said be funny and that was really the the point. Um, you know, having being funny in a personal conversation in a group of four in a group of ten is different from sitting in front of an audience of like four hundred people, right? Um, I, I did not have a stage fear. I've always been speaking on stage, performing on stage, um, dancing, 
theater, all of those. So stage was not the problem. My problem was the loop of feedback because, uh, you know, when you perform other things or you're speaking, you only get feedback at the end. Mm. You could, for all you know, you could suck at what you were doing. <laughs> but people get a chance to make you feel you were horrible only at the end. And I was like, what if I crack my first joke and nobody laughs? Right. <laughs> I think that was, the, that was what was scaring me the most. So um, for me, it was really, you know, cracking that first joke and getting a response. And then I was like, ah, I've got this. Cool. <laughs> I love it. I'm, I'm, uh, I think it's a wonderful way to, to explore issues. Mm -hmm. um, but I think when it comes to disability rights and disability rights activism, and, and you describe yourself as an activist first right. and foremost, right. um, comedy seems like a little bit of an unusual sort of outlet for that. <clears throat> I think I was tired being angry. Huh. <laughs> <No>. okay, <right laughs> on. That's one way of looking at it. But I think for me, what was, um, what was happening, Nick, was that um, you know, there were so many things that were that were happening around me, which were weird, right? I mean, something as basic as when I walk into the room and if you were to walk with me, um, I mean, besides the fact that you're a man um, and you have a, a, a race advantage in a racist world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but otherwise, also the natural authority was given to the non-disabled person walking next to me. Uh, so much so that they would come with a glass of water and say, would she want water? Huh. Right? And, I, you know, there were just so many such stories, and I found it really, really hilarious. But I also thought, somebody needs to sit down the non-disabled people and say you're trying to act weird or funny or whatever it is that you're doing. And I thought, hmm, comedy might be a great space where they're laughing and cringing all at once. So you like to make people uncomfortable, I think you said. I end up doing that. That's not my aim. <laughs> But why, why, why do people get uncomfortable? Because we're used to a certain norm. We're used to things being a certain way, and we have a limited understanding of things. We're not generally open to going beyond what we think is normal, right? And I think it's not normal in many, many societies, even today, in, not just in India, but all over the world, to have someone disabled being independent, being the decision maker, speaking like it's not normal in many, many societies and cultures to have a woman leading something, right? So I think it's really what's normal in that space and, and what you're exposed to and what you really want to get exposed to. So we're sitting in our comfort zone, having very typical ideas about who gets to lead or um, who's in power or who takes the decision, who's the boss. So we have, when we say boss, we have an imagery that pops up in our minds of this man in a suit sitting behind a desk, right? And so that imagery becomes the comfort zone and we're shifting the imagery. And I think that's the problem. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit then because this sort of touches on the idea of I don't like using the word infantilization necessarily, but I, but I think oh, that's the word. I think well, I think thematically, it's probably in in, in the right ballpark. Right. That um, my sense is, disabled people are often treated in, in in a way that is infantilizing. That is like they're a small child. Absolutely. And I'm curious how do, how does that experience reflect on you? Now people stop doing that because I know I'm a comedian. I ah. know I'm a comedian, but um, I think in general, the whole idea is that you wouldn't know what you want, right? Or we could tell you what to do. So something from basic as, are you, you know, are you hungry? Somebody else should decide. Uh, but also in terms of what you should do with your life and what's okay to ask for. All of that forms in the, falls in the bucket of infantilization. It's very similar to what we do to women um, in mm. culturally conservative contexts. So when a woman has to decide her career, she consults with the family and then the parents tell her what really 
works if she wants to have fun they're like oh you can have fun but you can have fun to this limit because beyond this it's unsafe um if she wants to make certain friends or decisions in her life you know some decisions are left to her but others not so i think it's very similar or but much more intensified in the lives of people with disabilities and i'll give you one example right i mean besides what i've already been giving you giving you um it's really at a conference or in a wedding or wherever else right there is there's a there's a spread of a buffet besides the fact that they would ask you what i would like to eat if i open my mouth and i say can i have just these three things can i have a salad and can i no, i don't eat salad sorry <laughs> anything healthy anything i have nothing healthy for me now so can i have dal rice and 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 a and a papar when the plate comes to me it comes with six more items and i'd be like but i didn't ask for this like but they were looking nice please have and if i make a fuss the others are like they really trying to help you why are you creating such a fuss about it right so we automatically assume this authority of we should also decide what they would like to eat from something as basic as this and this is the authority that is um assumed by people who don't even know me closely right and so imagine the level of control and authority that automatically me being disabled me as in people with disabilities in their lives people who are close to them their friends their families etc get so this is one of the simple examples but a more complicated social example that i'd like to give you is and which i've spoken in so many places but i think it's really really important is um uh, have you heard of the film margarita with a straw no yeah okay so this is a film made by an indian filmmaker inspired by um a woman living with cerebral palsy an mm-hmm. activist as well and so not really on her life but inspired by her life right and so this film is about a young woman living with cerebral palsy who's a wheelchair user who's exploring her own sexuality i mean all of bollywood is that right every first of all it's really binary so it's man and woman it's really the hero and the heroine but what else are they doing they're exploring sexuality romance etc etc but here's this young teenage disabled woman and so there was a backlash on that there was an article written by an actress uh, from india uh, who said she wrote an open letter which was published by a mainstream publication my problem is not so much that she wrote it i my problem was that it got published and she says that excuse me and she takes the name of the filmmaker and says i'm so sorry but if there were 10 things that disabled people wanted sex wouldn't be the 10th as well what what really and i was like wow you know you because you get to decide what you really want and she was a disabled actress <laughs> she was a non disabled actress so But sort of projecting what she, she so, so she thinks she's standing up for people with disabilities rights. and this is a very humiliating form for people with disabilities uh. because it's portraying us as desperate and i was like but then all of bollywood is desperate but we never term it like that huh. <laughs> so but it's also you know projecting and that's a great word that you picked up because when you infantilize someone you're starting a series of things you're deciding for them so they are not deciding you're speaking for them so their voice does, is not allowed to exist and in a sense you're invisibilizing them because you stand there and they are nowhere so ripple yep. effect Um you also talk about and I'm trying to remember where I saw you talk about this but this idea that when non-disabled people see disabled people it's through like three prisms and one of which is let's do it as a social like it's a social service opportunity Absolutely Um I'm going to help someone across the street and feel good about myself um I think you gave the example of I'm going to go feed 20 like 
kids birthday. or something, yeah. my birthday. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So talk about that a, a little bit and, and, and again, what that sort of feels like from <coughs> your point of view. Sorry. So I think um, what that brings me to is really this, I don't know about three prisms, I mean, because we touched on one of them is infantilizing, but the two ends that I'd like to put this in is really that disabled people are incapable and depressed hmm. and defective, or they are these superheroes, right? And, you know, you could have superhero characters <laughs> that are disabled, that's fine, but in general, in life, I can either, I can be one of the two, right? So um, when I am inferior, um, I am less I'm defective or I'm depressed, the automatic normal is you, right? I mean, I'm not targeting you, but generally the automatic normal is the non-disabled person who could then really, really help this poor person, right? So we're framing it in the lens of a lot of pity, a lot of charity, and we've somehow not moved away from it, you know? We've not moved away from, oh, these are disabled human beings or, or people with disabilities, and so they have their own sets of rights. We need to create an enabling environment. We come from the space of, oh, let's do something for them, for these poor people. And, and the best thing is, and gets into so much of joke in our community, you know, I have a lot of disabled friends as well. And so one of my blind friends was just standing and waiting for me uh, one of the days and I was slightly late I was 10 minutes late and he was waiting on the street somebody just grabbed his hand and made me made him cross the street <laughs> and he said wait wait and the person wouldn't listen it's like no no I can help you I can help you and he kept seeing that and helping him cross the street he reached the other side and he said done now can you put me back there because my friend's gonna come pick me up but you're right, this is what we do if there's a blind person on the street, that then clearly this, this is this person who's waiting for someone to take them across the street. But it's also very complicated, right? Because we don't imagine that a blind person could just chill on the street like we do. Yes. We don't That's think those mean. spaces belong to them. So it's, it comes from many, many spaces of discomfort. They're like, what is this oddball doing here? <laughs> like, oh, they're because they need help, right? So we need to rationalize it. The non-disabled people somehow feel this need to rationalize it within their limited universe. And I really call it a limited universe because you don't know how much fun exists in lives of people with disabilities. And again, very similar example, right? But I have to give this. So one of my disabled friends was meeting me in a, at a restaurant. And, and again, he reached early. I'm not painting a very good picture <laughs> of myself. Uh, no, I do reach in time, but he'd reached early. <laughs> and so he kept giving me detailed instructions of, okay, when you enter the restaurant, come in that section, walk straight on the left corner table. I'm sitting there and I'm like, calm down. And he's like, did you hear what I was saying? I said, no. <laughs> said, why? <laughs> he got really pissed. He was like, I'm trying to tell you. I'm, you know, I know you're super independent, but I'm just trying to be helpful. I said, calm down. As soon as I reach the restaurant, they'll get me to you. Hmm. I reached the restaurant. They said, Madam Sir's waiting for so long. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, never mind if he was on a separate date and I was on a separate <laughs> date. Then. I mean, we would be forced into a dating scenario. But really, so I really think the help comes from there. But the second piece is about, you know, and, and when we make people inferior, sorry, going back to that, you it's easy, right? Because then we rationalize people's existence. We're like, it's okay, they're less, they need our help. They can exist in society as less. Hmm. The other thing is that we're now getting un more and more uncomfortable because people with disabilities are living their lives, getting education, working, some of them are our bosses, and you're like, wait, what's happening? So, to make the second rationalization, you're like, oh, this is so inspiring. So I think that whole thing of 
superhuman, inspiring, anything to say that they're not normal, they're either less or they're more. So if I understand what you're saying, then it's a non-disabled person is sort of, we take that as the normal and, and the default is to I don't know, look down or view as inferior. But when the non-disabled person ends up working for someone who's disabled. Not just working, I'm interacting. Oh, interacting with things that we don't expect them to do, right? Fine, right, yeah. 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 Instead of that just being, oh, okay, now I'm interacting with this person, it's surely they have triumphed and overcome this enormous Correct. obstacle to be in a place where they're able Correct. to do this. Wow, Correct. good for them. Good for them, right? Yeah. Yeah, now I'm like, thumbs up. <laughs> but you but you would argue that what it sounds like is that that, that comes back to this whole normal, normal, not normal construct. It is that. It is that. It's really normal, not normal construct because when you don't let me be like you, right, you don't accept saying, oh, she has a different life, but she's, she has an interesting life, right? All of us have different sets of challenges in our lives, so levels of challenges. But we don't sit and, you know, look at for non-disabled person and people and say, oh, that one's more inspiring because the challenges were more, this one's less inspiring. But inevitably, when it comes to persons with disabilities, that's how we look at it. Um, two things again. Um, this really also comes from a space where once we say that this person's really strong and they tri triumph, triumph over everything, right? Like they're sort of able to battle everything and overcome everything then the responsibility shifts from us. Then we don't have to make spaces accessible. Hmm. We don't have to make systems accessible. We don't have to do anything because we're like, oh, this one's a champ. They'll just do it, no matter what. And I'm like, why should it be no matter what? And so it's a very typical example that I give in most of my trainings or sensitization workshops that I do for non-disabled people to say that if this workshop was on the 75th floor of a tower without an elevator, would you be there? And so I'm generally met with silence, like I'm meeting here. Mm. <laughs> and then one person would say, I would try and come. And I'm like, that's another thing that I wouldn't be here. <laughs> it was a 75th floor without an elevator. Because we see that as normal. We're like, oh, you know, tall buildings should have elevator. It's, it's sort of easier for non-disabled people to get to place a, from place A to place B. But when you say, oh, there are four steps. Can we have the ramp? And they're like, oh, my God, now you want a ramp as well. Mm. Right? That's only because we don't see it as a normal mobility space. But there has to be room at some point for heroes and for inspiration, right? Like, I mean, I look at my own life and I, I have certain people who are heroes to me and who inspired me. And if I, if there is an Iraq war veteran who lost their leg and I read a story that they ran a marathon, well, running a marathon is hard enough and you, need, you typically need your legs to run a marathon. So if someone uh, only has one leg and a prosthesis and then they run a marathon, that's inspiring, and I got to think that's inspiring to someone else Correct. with the process, prosthesis. So how do you differentiate, I don't know, true heroism versus this sort of false heroism? Correct. So I, 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 I'm no one to say it's true or false, right? But my, my point is just that you don't call a disabled person inspiring because they exist. Ah, okay, that's right? fair. And also, so one of my heroes, I, I have several in my life. So one of my heroes is my brother, and uh, he's blind as well, and he was sort of, I think, one of the first or only blind student to go to Wharton hmm. or first or in and India's de uh, world's definitely first trader on the financial markets. So he, he sort of battled, uh, changed the history in the world, right, yeah. by being the first ever blind trader. And I know the kind of barriers that were put in his path, right? And so understanding all of that, I'd be like, you're amazing. Um, 
and I would have a sister who's also my hero, who's not disabled, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think my heroism or, or the fact that I get inspired is based only on the disability, is what I'm trying to say. Contexts are really complicated. So if you look at somebody summiting Mount Everest, summiting Mount Everest is hard enough, right? And so you're also admiring them because they summited Mount Everest and they live with a disability where you could slip at any point and there's this blind person who you know who's really on the basis of instructions because of their practice is really putting one step ahead of the other where also it's dangerous for many other mountaineers so i think contextualizing and deepening it a little bit and also differentiating so somebody came up to me at a conference and said i know you hate the word inspiring i said i don't hate it she said, but I still think you're inspiring. And I said, fair <laughs> to you. I'm glad I inspired you. And she said, no, you don't get it. There are many, many people who speak, but you're a very inspiring speaker. Hmm. And I said, that's fair. That's absolutely fine. Right on. Okay. So I like this idea that I'm not inspiring because of my existence. The, the, the virtue of me being here doesn't mean, it doesn't mean anything in and of itself. So oh. just, right, I mean, I walk into an office and I'm just opening the door and I enter and I say hello and people are like, oh, we, we're so lucky to have people like you who are such inspirations. And I'm like, I just walked three steps with a white cane and said hello. <laughs> How much of inspiration was out of me there? Hey, I, I think anytime you hear the words people like you, there no, 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 it's never going to be a good follow on. Um, <laughs> so look, um, I'm, I'm curious, just from a practical and kind of an interest standpoint, you live in Mumbai. Yes. Um, I live in Mumbai and this city is hard enough to, to exist in, um, uh -huh. in and of itself. So what are maybe five things that are part of your daily life in Mumbai that uh, non-disabled people might not think about? Five things in Mumbai? Yeah. I think the taxis. The taxis, okay. <laughs> They're really integral in my life because I think that's how I get from point A to point B or the auto rickshaws, right? It's really the, that kind of public transport, that piece of public transport that I, um, I interact with on a daily okay, basis. Okay, so everyone is suspicious of the rickshaw drivers, right? Like notorious for uh, shenanigans. How do you ensure you're on the right route? I sit confidently and not like I'm like, I'm suspicious of you. Where are you <laughs> taking me? Oh my God, I'm panicking. I'm like, I'm sitting. What are you going to do? Hmm. You know, it was two hours for me to reach from Allah to Bandra. It'll take me 15 minutes more if you decide your shenanigans. Okay. It's as simple as that, right? You also cut off where you're going to get frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing is, I mean, technology has made life really, really s like easier. I wouldn't say just simple, but easier, right? I used an auto rickshaw where there was nothing else but my mental map to take me hmm. to places. Um, so I think now complaining about it, I mean, most of the times my maps are also not on. I also think that the more you trust people, 90% uh, of the times your trust is rewarded. Mm. So I think disability also teaches you this beautiful thing called trust. So when I hold someone's hand and walk, I have to trust that they won't make me sort of, you know, bang me into things. And if they do, I'm like, hey, that's not how you guide me. So I think uh, that's one of the things. The second, second, but I think I should put it on the top of my list because of the amount that I travel. I think the second place I interact with in Mumbai the most. I mean, my my uh, prepaid cabs have started auto-populating their field of where to. <laughs> it's the Mumbai International Airport. Ah. Right, because I, I travel a lot for my work within the country and outside as well. Um, so I interact a lot with the airport. And the airport is like a bittersweet spot for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sweet because it takes me to places. It takes me 
to my work destinations. It enables me to meet so many people, but also many a times really frustrating. And this is not just Mumbai. In particular, airports all over the world could be frustrating because you're traveling. And again, travelers with a disability may or may not be considered with dignity. Um, so I've had instances where ground staff has yelled at me and I'm like, what's your name? And they're like, I won't tell you. And I said, you're wearing a name tag. If I could see, I would be able to tell. And they're like, yeah, sure, but you can't see. Seriously? Yes. I've had those. That's not, seriously? I've had those instances in India, but I've had instances where I was locked up in Germany in a lounge. So it's really not They about locked you in a lounge in Germany? They locked me in a lounge. What they said, you're not allowed to get out because what if you get lost? And I'm like, but I need food. I have an eight hours layover and I'm just back from a 13 hour flight and I have another eight hours flight ahead. They're like, sorry. We'll neither assist you to get food, nor will, you, will we allow you. And so they kept my boarding pass and everything, and they wouldn't let me go out. What the heck? So, and this is up, like, this is online. I've, I've spoken about it, and all of that has happened. So it's just, you know, tra traveling can be such a pleasure, but I think a lot of people take the pleasure for granted. When you're disabled, you're ready for everything. You're just ready to be facing it's Sorry for my words, but <laughs> shit at er any sorry. point of your journey. But you're also sitting in these... Aircrafts where you're trying to call, you know, press the call bells, and many a times the air hostess doesn't respond. And so, for you, uh, for you, for any non-disabled person, it would mean to get up and ask for water. For a disabled person, it would mean to sit in an eight-hour flight, flight without water. But do you, I, I gotta think that you <laughs> see. First, you started off with humanity's good, right? Trust ninety percent of people, and then uh, you're getting locked in a room at the at the uh, airport in Frankfurt or something. So I'm all confused now. But uh, I've, I've like a 60 page booklet of a passport in four years All but right. I have like 20 instances to say but I take like 45 trips a year so fair enough but <laughs> I, I, I gotta think that people people I think I gotta think that people want to be helpful right like if you're in the airplane next to somebody you can't say hey will you call them and get me a, for a glass of water or does that feel like disempowering somehow it's definitely disempowering. It is. It's also it's also crap because I'm like, why should I? I'm 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 34 now. I've been traveling for like seven eight years now, and I, I mean traveling for work intensively for seven eight years. And when you're a frequent traveler, you know how important is that like 10 minutes sleep in the aircraft. And what if the person next to me is sleeping? Hmm. I wouldn't want to do that. And I'm I'm problematically independent. <laughs> so <laughs> for someone like me, it gets really 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 hard to turn 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 around to a passenger and be like. Can I, can I please ask you for help? I mean, I do ask for help. It's not like I'm proud and I won't ask for help even if I'm dying. But it, what I mean to say is I think it's very undignified to say, just take help. It's fine. You know, if there's no air hostess or if there's no ground staff, just take someone's help. And I think technology, as much as can be enabling, I think we're not thinking through univers universality of designs. Um, so the little touch screens that we all are very excited about in aircrafts and when they place the call bell on the touch screen of their monitor, you really know that the next 12 hours are going to be hell. This is really smart, what you're saying, because as, as I was sitting here listening to you talk about, it's undignified to ask for, for help, and then you sort of transition to, that's sort of a, a, um, a, a crutch or a, a panacea or a band-aid for the real problem, which is design, right? That you shouldn't have to turn and ask someone Absolutely. for help because the, the, the the button should be <laughs> easy to access in the first place. And they should be responsive. Yeah, uh, yeah well, yeah, the, hey, it's not, you're not the only one. Not no, <laughs> no, that's why I said you know about that. <laughs> yeah, that's the universal thing. Uh, what, what else from daily life might people not think about? Um, people's interaction. Okay. So it's very interesting. Um, 
whenever I go to places, A, that people, you know, you're the center of attention because you're still one of the few people, like visually and visibly disabled person in their space many a times. And so my sister often jokes about this and she's like, whenever I hold your hand and I'm walking, I feel like I, there's a need to dress up and come out, <laughs> not just come in my pajamas and t-shirt. And I'm like, why? It's like, everybody's looking at you. Wow. <laughs> and generally it's okay because I'm okay with that. But it's like, I inevitably come in the spotlight and I'm not a, I'm not a people's person. I don't like to be in the spotlight. So these are the conversations I'm having. But at the same time, it's also fun because you know, I'm walking on the street and the street clears off. <laughs> <laughs> so some of my friends are like, hey, it's cool to walk with you because the street clears up. <laughs> um, so I think that's that's one of the, uh, the, the, you know, that experience with people is one of the things, but also like, you know, because people want to be helpful. And of course, this is a part of my stand up, but I'll just share it here. Um, and I still remember my first ever date uh, in my early 20s. I landed on a date finally in my 20s. Uh, and so I proposed a restaurant which I was familiar with because I exactly did not want this sort of gawking and staring and things like that. And the guy agreed and we went and we'd, I don't think I really called it a date. We really didn't call it a date. We call it a catch up or whatever mm. else. But anyway, we were sitting and the waiter got super helpful, right? Um, and so my friend asked me, what would you like to eat? Um, and before I could respond, the waiter said, ma'am really likes Mexican. Ah. <laughs> and so, I was really confused because I, I'm okay with Mexican food, but I don't really like Mexican um, uh, that way. And you know, in my head, just out of teenage, I was like Mexican men, mm, Mexican food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, and so my friend played along, and he said, "Oh, really, ma'am likes Mexican? Are you sure?" And he's like, "Yes, yes, sir. I can tell you because ma'am came here last night with another sir and ordered everything Mexican." What? First of all, man, was here last night with another <laughs> sir? That's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> so your privacy goes for a freaking toss. Wow. You're, you're sitting there and you're like, oh my God, I have to, ex I, of course, I, he didn't ask for it, but I explained saying I was here with my cousin, which was true. But <laughs> wow. <laughs> so... It's just, you know, your privacy, your autonomy, you know, all these are not just words, they're realities for people with disabilities. And the last thing of interacting with people, so instead of five things, I'll just say three things about interactions, mm. right? And I think which is really, really serious and we don't really give it um, the time and space that it deserves. Um, in public places or otherwise, people do not think that you have bodily autonomy. And it seems like a really big word, but just to ask me before holding my hand is extremely important, right? Hmm. We wouldn't turn around holding somebody else's hand just generally imagining that they need help. We don't even do that to kids. We should not if you're doing right, it. Right, yeah. But just to say that it's, it's so important. It's a part of daily living for people with disabilities like me all across the world, that people just grab them, hold them, touch their wheelchairs, grab their assistive devices, all with the idea of support, with the idea that they think they're supporting well. You know, if you just paused and asked saying, how can I help you? Can I hold your hand? Or here's my elbow. Um, and particularly when you're a woman with a disability, right? There are days when you're like, I don't want to touch anybody. Just go away, world, <laughs> right? Uh, but also you're feeling really unsafe. This is a space where you're not se you're sensing danger or you're not sort of feeling comfortable. 
what does it mean when then someone tries to lift you up and transfer you out of your wheelchair because the spaces are not accessible? It's really complicated. So if you just just respected that kind of body, bodily autonomy and space and privacy and the ability to consent, and because we don't respect this in daily life, um, the problem is, Nick, that then it's just a step away from respecting to abuse, hmm. and we don't understand how minor, how how fine that line can be. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there um, on a, a pretty powerful thought. But I do want to thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a, a really wonderful um, few minutes to, I got to spend with you, and I, I wish we could do more of it. Um, but anyways, my guest today, Nitty Goyle, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank and, you so much. Oh, and and no, yeah. please, go ahead. Now, just to share that there are lots more that, um, you know, there's lots more to reflect on and to think about and to know. And it's not all serious. There are also stories and narratives and fun, et cetera. So um, just signing off, um, I, you know, just leaving some coordinates to follow my work at Says Nidhi Goyal on Twitter um, and my website of our organization, risingflame.org. Perfect. Great. I, I should have plugged that anyways. I'm sorry. That's terrible <laughs> hosting on my part. Um, and maybe we can have you uh, back again soon and, uh, and tell some more stories together. Um, this has been the Chartercast for this week. I'm Nick Novak. We will see you next time. Bye, Nick.